to Psalms chapter 13. That's Psalm 13. We've been going through this series in the Psalms. This is our summer series right now. Um, If you're new to substance, what we like to do is we like to just preach through books of the Bible. We like to preach through passages of the Bible. This thing we call expositional preaching, where we just like to take it all from God's Word. That's what we like to base our preaching on, and that's what we're doing uh, in the summer right now through the Psalms. And we've We've, uh, we've just looked at some different psalms. We've looked at four or five different psalms so far. And what we've noticed is that there's just different kinds of psalms. We've, uh, we've gone through some of the different types of psalms, which are some of them kind of base, kind of go, go in, in, in terms of like wisdom for practical living. Some of them kind of speak into the trust that we have or that we, we lack for uh, Christ and God. And then last week we looked into Psalm 131, which is called a song of ascent. And we saw um, uh, David, and we saw just this, this heart and this spirit that he had cultivated for the Lord, which was that he had this quiet confidence. Um, his heart and his eyes, they didn't have to be lifted uh, too high or to be concerned with things too great for him because he knew who would provide for him in both the now and the forever. And so we saw that last week as David came very quietly before the Lord, writing the songs. The psalms are actually songs of worship. Um, And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 13, known as a song of lament. So there's, there's, there's different types of psalms, like we've talked about. Some of them are actually called songs of lament. And this morning, we're going to see how David is just sort of mired in sorrow, and he's just sort of stuck in some doubt in his life. And he comes before the Lord, and he asks the question, How long? He just comes honestly before the Lord and he just asks a question, a very simple question that he fleshes out a little bit, but he just says, how long, O Lord? How long is what's going on in my life going to continue going on? Someone asked me this week uh, the question, are you a glass half full or a glass half empty guy, Big R? And I, I kind of immediately dove in and I just kind of answered really quickly, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a glass kind of half-empty guy because I, I just kind of tend to feel like that's how God has wired me. But then I thought, after I finished the conversation, I thought, well, you know, in reality, it's interesting because I'm actually really both. I'm actually really both. But then I thought a little further about the question because I apparently had a lot of time to think about this question. And uh, I, I realized that's not really the question for us. And it's kind of one of those things that we talk about and we, we ask each other a lot to sort of figure out each other's personalities, but that's not really the question. Is The question is, do I understand that God is the one who fills my glass? And am I satisfied with whatever portion he decides to fill it with at that time or at that season in my life? Because we're going to have seasons of both. And what we'll see this morning is that there are times when it feels like God is silent. And we question whether he's even there. And one of the questions we want to ask and answer, hopefully this morning, is whether we believe that these particular seasons in our life are actually ordained by God. Are they God-ordained? That God thinks it's a good and necessary thing for us to have moments and seasons of doubt where it feels like we're not hearing from him. And we feel like we're complaining to him. One of the things I hope we see is that God in his grace uses these moments so that we learn how to lament. 
how to be sorrowful, how to admit our doubts. Because I'm just going to be honest with you guys, man. Somewhere along the line, and maybe you guys have seen this. I don't know what your church background is. Substance is kind of a new church. So we have people coming from different churches as we're sort of forming our church here. But somewhere along the line, Christianity just became kind of this subculture of like happy clappiness, right? It's like Christians equated sadness with sinning and doubt with a lack of devotedness. Now, if your life is consumed by these things, then we need to have a little bit of a convo about them. But the Psalms show us that the children of God have both the freedom and the privilege of being honest before God. And I was talking to my wife, and uh, we were just kind of talking about this passage a little bit. And she made this comment to me that I thought was so significant. She said, I don't think I've ever had a pastor tell me it's okay to be sad. It's like, what? How is it not okay to be sad? I mean, when we open up this book, which we do, we see men and women that are gripped by sadness. And they're in the depths of doubt in their lives. And we see a God who is patiently gracious and merciful and just is basically standing there with his arms open saying, bring it, bring it to me. And though God appears to forget us at times, he actually uses these moments to draw us back to what we may have forgotten about him. That his love is steadfast. That his salvation is secure. And then we begin to see all the ways that he's been anything but silent. And we recount the ways that he's never stopped being anything less than he is because it's one of the things he cannot do. God cannot be any less than who he is. You know, growing up, my, uh, man, my family vacations were just sad. They were just sad affairs. Um, man, they looked like outtakes from all the Chevy Chase movies. They just flat out did. Um, the joke was that no matter where we attempted to go, we'd always end up in a cheap motel in the desert. No matter where we went, that's what happened. That's what happened. Um, so one year, we drove all the way to Six Flags which was just hours away. It wasn't close. And when we got there, it, it, was, cl- it was closed. Yeah. And, you know, if you talk to my mom today, she'd probably make the excuse, well, you know, Ronnie, we, we didn't have the Internet back then. You know, we couldn't figure these things out. Of course, I'd remind her, like, we did have telephones. Like, they had invented those things by this time. You know, a little phone call before that three-hour jaunt would have been beautiful, you know. Um, so, of course, instead, we drove to this little desert town called Palmdale, which, of course, is just right in the middle of the desert. Um, and that's where we stayed, instead of going to Six Flags. Um, of course, to me, the downside of all of our vacation successes and failures was just the driving. The brutal driving in the car, dad, mom, brothers, sisters, right? Um, and it was the old cliche where, I, you know, I asked my parents, how long? How long? And of course, when you're driving through the desert, which most of Southern California is desert, there's not a lot of change in scenery to make you think 
you're making a whole lot of progress, right? The landscape is kind of unchanging, and so you feel like you're going just nowhere, which, you know, in the case of our family vacations, we actually were. But, so what happened is my parents, would they would just, you know, they would just, all of our incessant nagging, they would just sort of answer it by saying things like, you know, my mom looking behind saying, we'll get there when we get there. You just need to sit there, be quiet, and let dad get us there, you know? And then out of the blue, man, you'd see a roadside, and you'd be reminded that maybe we're actually getting closer to our destination. But the waiting and the silence, and again, man, this is, this is pre-drop-down DVD with the movies playing the whole time, and it's the whole deal. But the silence and the waiting, it felt kind of torturous. And it caused us to doubt that we'd ever actually get there, especially when you're eight years old. You know, it made me think, man, the old man, he does not know where we're going. Which, of course, you know, if I ever would have said that to him, he would have told me exactly where we were going. I didn't do that. But what we're going to see with David is sometimes we find ourselves seeking relief, but finding nothing. Our prayers feel like they're being uttered in a vacuum. As soon as they leave our mouths, it's as if gravity pulls them back to the earth, somehow preventing them from traveling upward to the ears of God. And so what we're going to see this morning is how David, in his complaints and in his pleas to God, he felt the same way. So let's do that. Let's read together Psalm 13. We're going to start at verse 1. It says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Then finally he says this, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's God's word. That's David coming before the Lord. So, What's interesting about this psalm is we see right from the beginning here, David comes and he makes four complaints to God. Almost like he's accusing God. He comes before him, he says, how long will you ignore me? How long will you continue to forget about me? Because this doesn't just feel like something momentary. This doesn't feel like something that I'm just looking at and I see a problem and I've located the light at the end of the tunnel. He's saying this feels like forever. He's not just being dramatic here. He's not just pulling teenage girl stuff on us when he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He's saying this thing that I am in, we're not, giving a, we're not given a lot of information to what David was going through, but we understand by his tone and his words that this was something that he could not see the end of. So for David, this didn't feel momentary. 
And you think about yourself, and you think about the times in your life where you can't see the end of the darkness that you find yourself trapped in. For David, his doubt, he turned into despondency. His grief is so great that he can't see any end of it. So he says, how long will you forget about me? How long will you hide your face from me? He says, will you continue to keep your presence away from me? Have you removed your presence? I don't feel you there with me, living and breathing and instructing me and hearing me anymore. Then he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will you continue to be silent to God? Because I have anxiety and I have cares that need to be met and I'm not feeling cared for. I don't have anybody anymore to turn to for help. I feel like I'm on my own and I feel like it's one of those things where when you have issues and you guys all know what this feels like and you replay over the scenarios or the lack of scenarios over and over again in your head and you can't come up with an answer and you cannot find relief. This is what's happening with David. Then he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long will you let my enemies look at me and be elevated above the place that you have sovereignly anointed me as your king to be above? So David, man, he just comes in and he just throws down four complaints. And these aren't insignificant questions. They're not insignificant questions. This is a guy that complains so boldly before the Lord that at first it almost feels shocking. Doesn't it? Like, why does God allow him to speak like this? You know, we recall the book of Job when Job complains to God and God answers back to him. In chapter 38, and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world, buddy boy? I added the last part. But here we see David questioning God. And like we read further, we don't see God really giving him an answer. Do you find yourself doing the same thing? Do you find yourself crying out and complaining? Because David knew who he was. He knows that he's God's anointed. He knows that God has a purpose and a plan, that God is for the establishment and the success of his kingdom. So he comes in, drops four complaints on the table. And then he takes it a step further. And he makes three demands of God. We get into verse 3 and he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. So again, now David comes to him and says, Here's my complaint. Here's what I need you to do now. I need you to listen to me. Because I feel like I am crying out in the dark and it is just blank. It's like a vacuum in here. I'm not hearing your voice. I need you to listen to me. I need you to see what I'm going through and consider the pain and the depth 
that's stirring inside me. And then he says, I need you to answer me. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. And you notice after he says, answer me, he says, O Lord, my God. He's saying here, David, when he comes before the Lord, when he's making a demand, he's saying, by the way, BT-dub, Lord, uh, you're still my Lord, and I haven't denied you. You're still my God. I haven't dropped out on this thing. I'm coming before you. I'm asking you to consider and answer me. Then he says, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's saying, help me. He's saying, help me. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that to God where you've just said, God, I don't know what to pray, but I just need you to help me because I'm weak right now. I need you to, I need you to help me to see clearly. Don't let me sink to the depths. Don't let my enemy claim victory because this is your people. David is saying, this is your people, O God. So David comes, he lays down four bold complaints. And then he just backs it up with three demands. And then rather instantaneously, he turns a corner in verses 5 and 6, and he makes three proclamations to God. He proclaims three things to God after complaining and after demanding. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great 19th century preachers, he said this about David. He said, David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. He begins many of the Psalms with sighing and ends them with singing. And that's what we see here when we get to verses 5 and 6 when he says, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And then he finishes by saying, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we see here that he trusts in the enduring quality of God's love. It's the first thing he does. And then secondly, he rejoices in the salvation of God by being rescued by God in the midst of saying, all of these enemies are prevailing over me. He rejoices in being ultimately rescued by God. And then he sings of God's gracious treatment of him. So he complains, he demands, and then he comes to this. I mean, I, I would say that this is the narrowest gap that I've ever seen in my... the, the, the narrowest emotional gap I've ever seen in, in the history of my life. And I don't want us to miss what happens here. Because how does a guy go from verses 1 through 4 and then get to 5 just like that? I mean, does that ever happen to you? One minute you're saying, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. I don't think many of us turn the corner that quick into how we come before the Lord. So even before David's pain is resolved... It's like God just like jolts his memory, just hotwires his brain, and that thing just starts again, right? There's no gap. It's stunning how quickly David's tone changes. And his words move from total despondency to total dependence and delight even. It's like he almost contradicts everything that he just says. Do you guys get what I'm saying here? He's saying God's love has been steadfast. It will continue to be now. 
The salvation of God has not been destroyed in my distress. So I will rejoice in it now. God has not withheld his blessings in the past, so I won't let my predicament prevent me from worshiping him now. Dude, do we get back to this truth as quickly as David? I think most of us do not. I'm just speaking from, speaking personally now. I think most of us get to the end of verse 4, and then there's a rather large gap where we go elsewhere to find comfort and security and hope that, you know what, man? It's just a hard time. i got to wait it out, and everything's somehow going to work itself out. That's what I think we do. I think there's a huge gap in distance between verse 4 and 5 in most of our lives. I just need time to get away, man. That's what's going on right now. Things are just a little murky. I just need time to think. I need time to figure this out. Sometimes we do need time to think and to figure things out. But never within the absence of the presence of God. So we see David cinching together this gap. He goes from total despondency to total dependency. I think this passage is unique in the fact that it's telling us three things that I want to dig into about what I'm calling this week the silence of God in our lives. Three things. Three things I think this is implying for us. I hope this is helpful with where you find yourself at, with the freedom that you think that you have or don't have to go before the Lord and take your stuff and to take wherever your mind is at and to take wherever is just overflowing in your heart and to literally just drop, to mic drop that stuff on the table before the Lord and say, this is it. This is what I got right now. Because what I think is happening and what I think generally happens in modern evangelical Christianity is this clappy stuff that we do. We don't know how to be sad. We don't know how to come before the Lord honestly. We don't know how to come to our brothers and sisters honestly and say, you have got to pray for me, brother, because I am struggling. So here's three things. Number one, God's silence is his way of waking us up. It's his way of waking us up. David is, he's just, he's awoken here, isn't he? He He's not missing anything here, right? I think what happens is that we ignore God until we need God, and then typically we become angry when we don't feel like he's listening to us. But I think what this passage tells us is that we need silence sometimes. And I don't know if that's something that ever occurs to us, but I think it's how God gets our attention sometimes. Because a man or woman who is crying out to the Lord is a man, woman, or child that may have been too self-assured to do it before. Because God is good and because we believe God is good is because every word in this Bible affirms the goodness of God. It means 
that his silence or his perceived silence, that's good too. That's good too. It causes us to wake up from apathy, to become aware of the state of our own hearts. I mean, say what you want about David, but this dude is not complacent here. He's not complacent. He's aware of his need, and then he becomes even more aware of the only one who can fill that need. So God's silence is his way of waking us up, too. God's silence is his way of reminding us that we need to speak to him, and we need his word to speak to us. I think what this passage reminds us of, what I feel like it reminds me of, is my neglect. My neglect to go before the Lord to speak to him and to open up this book so that he can speak to me. That although we all, or some of us, may be people of faith, our faith may not be placed on the object of true faith. And so, man, this just, this just brings it all in. This just brings it all home. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this. If David had not been persuaded that God had his eyes upon him, it would have availed him nothing to cry to God. But, his, but this persuasion, he says, was the effect of faith. So bringing our complaints and our doubts before the Lord, it's an act of faith. David was acting in faith. And how he ends this passage in verse 5 and 6 shows us that faith. So God's silence wakes us up. His silence reminds us that we need to open our mouth and speak to him. We need to open his word so that he can speak to us. Because everything he wanted to say to us, he had men under inspiration of the Holy Spirit write those things down. That's what we have now. We have God's word. Three. God's silence is his way of redirecting our worship. And our worship just kind of tends to go a little haywire, like all the time. It's to help us see that our idols can't save us, and that they're failing us. So sometimes what God does is he takes what is sometimes far away and he puts it before our eyes. He takes these blind spots that we constantly have and he, he fills them in with his silence so that eventually we can see and they can open and we see a picture of God. I can't see how these things are going to work out. Anybody ever say that? I just don't see how this is going to work out. But I know, but I know that God works all things for good to those who love and are called according to his purpose. So God's silence is his way of redirecting our worship back to him for us to be able to come before him and say, no, but God, I, I can't see the end. This tunnel is so dark, but I know that you're good and I know that you work all things out for good to those who love you even when we love you weakly, even when our love for you is weak and it's faint. Because once we're called according to his purpose, he's not going to fail to act. So what we see here from David is that when he comes before the Lord and he's lamenting and he's writing a sad song, this is a ballad from David. 
And when he's writing a sad song, we understand that it's a right response. This is a right response from David. And it's a necessary response. And we also understand that it's a seasonal response. This was for a season. Because what we know about the silence of God is that he's never really silent, is he? God has spoken words that resonate from the past to the present and into the future. His steadfast love, his salvation, the generous way he has dealt with us by providing the death of his son is always speaking loudly to us and to this church. Amen? Will we go back and allow this truth to ground us, to change us, to encourage us, to motivate us, make us more mindful of God? Will you exercise your faith like David by trusting and worshiping God even before you get any resolution? Because that's what's happening right here. David's problems have not been resolved, and yet he's committed his heart to trusting what he knows about the heart of God. So though God appears to forget us at times, he uses these moments to draw us back to what we may have forgotten about him. That his love is steadfast and his salvation is secure. Here's my worry. Here's my worry. My worry is not that we complain to God, but that we complain to everyone but God. So here's what I would say to encourage us this morning. Search your hearts this morning. Make a list. And when I say list, I mean grab one of those things called a pen, maybe a paper, maybe your MacBook. I'm saying get words down on something. Make a list of things that are bothering you. Things that you are constantly thinking about. Things that you are constantly complaining to others about. And then open your Bible. Go before the Lord. Read the list. And then do it again the next day. I think it's when we faithfully go before the Lord that He reveals His faithfulness to us. You're going to hear from the Lord when your Bible is open to His Word. Because God has already broken His silence. The silence has been broken. But some of you have a lot of layers of those things that have built up through the years. I remember in the 70s when we moved into a new house and they had just invented these things called trash compactors for, for, for homes. And um, it was an interesting gadget, you know, because you just keep throwing stuff in there and throwing stuff in there. You'd hit like the compact button and the thing would go and press down and you'd get about 75 tons of trash in just this little thing because it kept pressing down. At some point, I mean, dude, we never wanted to take out the trash, so we just kept putting things in there to just hopefully allow it to keep compacting so we would never have to lift that thing out and walk out to the trash can, you know, at the curb. Eventually, it stopped compacting because it had gotten too full. Is that your heart? Is your heart so full because you have not done what David has done here? If that's you, then I can guess that you're burdened and a lot of times you're crushed.
Don't waste your pain. Don't be ashamed of it. Share it with him. His grace, God's grace, he's accounted. It's accounted for your pain. His grace accounts for your doubts. It accounts for your complaining. I had a conversation with a friend of mine a while back, and he told me that he has never felt the freedom to say that he's struggling with doubt. And I thought that was so interesting, as if we don't have the freedom to come before the Lord honestly with our doubt. Knowing that he's not surprised by it, knowing that he's going to meet us in those places where we are not believing that he's real and that he's true and that he hasn't worked in our lives for what seems like forever. And it's in those moments when we have just that oppressive doubt that we need to doubt our doubts. Do you ever doubt your doubts? Something rises up in us. We give it so much validity not understanding that these things rising up in us that push against who God is are actually lies. So we need to doubt our doubts because this is what we see David doing in verses 5 and 6. David essentially contradicts everything he says previously. It's so interesting. David doubts his doubts. Theologian guy named Oz Guinness, this is what he said, if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we're believing what clearly was not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, he says, our faith has grown stronger. It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. So that's why we embrace these things. We're honest about these things. We share them with one another. We bring them before God's throne of grace. We're a family that doesn't have to hide. We can tell of the things that are troubling us. We can sing sad songs of lament. We sing songs like, Oh God, you never leave my side. We sing songs like, Come ye sinner. We sing songs that are just deeply speaking to the mess that consistently rises to the surface of our hearts. Because God's given us space to wrestle. He's given you space to wrestle, brothers and sisters. There's a place for doubt and sadness and sorrow and complaining in the Christian life. There's space to cry out and say, God, will you just help me? Will you just answer me. We see it all through the Bible. We see it in Moses. He was waiting for 40 years without a word from the Lord. Do you think there was a time from 40 to 80 that Moses may have sort of said, I don't know, God, it's been a while. What do you got going on these days? What about Abraham? Do you think that when Abraham hit 100 and his wife was in her 90s, that he may have thought that the promise God made to him to create a generation and a people for himself wasn't maybe going to happen? What about Hannah? 
the mother of the prophet Samuel. This is a woman that cried so bitterly about not getting pregnant that the priest thought she was an alcoholic. Then there was Joseph, a slave and a prisoner between the ages of 17 and 30, did not receive a written, accounted for word from the Lord about, you know what, just hang in there, Joe, because one of these days you're going to rule the nation of Egypt, give it a few more years. Word didn't come to him. It never came to him. So what all of the Bible, the story of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, what they do as we finish up now, is they give us this rhythmic component to suffering. And this is what it tells us. It tells us that our faith runs many times through shallow streams. But eventually, it reaches deeper pools. Because what's carrying it is the flow of God's faithfulness. Without verses 5 through 6, gosh, this is a hopeless passage, isn't it? Without the hope of the gospel, without the hope of God's steadfast love, without his salvation, without the bountiful ways that he deals with those who repent and submit to his son, the Bible is just a brutal, bloody book filled with absolute and total despair. But we don't have to pretend because David didn't pretend because Jesus didn't pretend. Remember the night when he goes before God before his death and he cries out and he says, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup, I mean, if you're just, if you are willing to take away the way that I have to suffer for the sin of mankind, if, you, if there's some way for you to alter this, please do it. But, just like David does in verse 5 and 6, Jesus turns and says, but not my will, your will. So it's not God's will that we don't suffer. It's that our eyes are opened to the suffering of our Savior when we're in pain. We rejoice in a salvation greater than being saved from our pain in this world. And yet, He hears us and He cares for us. He cares for you wherever you're at, whatever things are crushing you right now. Will you go to Him? Will you pray to Him? Will you open His Word? Will you allow that eternal grace and mercy comfort your soul? And will you come to one of us and talk to us about that so that we can walk alongside you, so that we can be the church with you, so that when you tell us these things, we can say, that sounds really familiar to some of the things that I've dealt with in my life. So I encourage you to do that this morning. We're going to be hanging out 
We're going to be eating some fantastic BBQ. Um, I'm going to be hanging around. I want to talk to you. I'm going to be standing back here after the service is over. Um, Jeff, you want to raise your hand? Dave, you want to raise your hand? These are the elders of our church right here. Man, they want to talk with you. They want to pray with you. We want to walk alongside of you. Because you might be in a time of your life where it feels like God's silent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are never truly silent. That your word speaks to us very loudly and very clearly. Although there are times when the layers of doubt and sadness have just compounded and compressed upon us and we just can't see any light through the darkness. But we know that you have accounted for these feelings that we have and that we feel in these times that bear down on us. We know that the cross of Christ has accounted for those things and we have an advocate. We have somebody who cares about us. We have somebody in Christ that was tempted just like we are, that was a man of sorrows, that has felt the things that we have felt. Oh Lord, we just pray that we would come to you with these things, that you would meet us in this place, that you would show yourself to be the help that you are. And I pray that we would open up our hearts to the people around us. That's why you've given us the church. You've given us a group of people who can walk through the storms of life with us. So I pray that you would humble us so that we wouldn't continue to walk down these crushing, burdensome, entire, tiring paths. Lord, you're a good God. You've given us what we need. So Lord, I pray that you would meet our needs this morning as we remember that, as we come before you, as we remember your death on the cross, Lord, your body broken and your blood shed for us, Lord. May we be mindful and reflective on these things this morning, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. I invite you.